Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. On this episode of Shoulder of Orion, Jamie and Dan have the pleasure of meeting with and interviewing film historian Paul M. Salmon. Mr. Salmon is the author of Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner. Available as a hard copy and an ebook through Amazon. The new edition was released in September of 2017, containing brand new material throughout, including all new interviews with Harrison Ford, Sean Young, and Rudger Hauer. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jane Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Ferlito. And today we are talking to Paul Salmon. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for asking me, guys. Um, we've been tracking you down for a while, um, and I know that you've been all over the place. Um, and I know you were recently in a screening for Blade Runner on a rooftop, right? Isn't that where it was? Well, there was supposed to be one. And uh, there apparently was a venue change. And it's still going to happen. But uh, at this point, it looks like it's going to be July or August. Okay. And uh, it may happen here in Hollywood. And uh, right now, I'm, I'm available. You know, I've already committed to it. Um, but yeah, they're going to, the plan is to have one night, the original, and then have uh, Blade Runner uh, 2049 the next night and I'm sort of going to host it introduce it and whatnot but that um, was supposed to happen this month and okay. uh, or, excuse me I'm wrong it was supposed to happen at the end of May May 25th and they had to reschedule so we're, I'm just in the midst of waiting to find out awesome so uh, just to kind of as an icebreaker like what brings you back to the Los Angeles area now I know you've been traveling a, a bit <laughs> a bit. Uh, yeah. In the last six months, I've probably driven about 6,000 miles. Um, I like to drive, thank God. Otherwise, I'd be a raving lunatic by now. Hi, kitty. Hello, this is the Blade Runner cat. And by the way, <laughs> by the way it is artificial. <laughs> That's a good key. Um, yeah. Uh, long story short is... Uh, and this is somewhat personal, so I'll keep it short. But uh, my wife and I have been bi-coastal for many decades. And uh, I met her in Florida in 1975. I'm happy to announce that it's 43 years. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, I, well, both of us kind of look at each other sometimes and go, really? <laughs> you know, or, or if we're pissed off at each other that day, we go, really? <laughs> um, but... It, it because of uh, certain uh, work circumstances uh, and uh, some actually some really good news uh, we decided that it would be smarter to cut our long-term ties in LA and uh, uh, primarily base ourselves back in our place in Florida but that's going to change too within a year 
So there's, uh, I'm back and forth. Uh, I am fortunate enough to have uh, great friends who uh, help me out when I come into town, so I don't have to go being, you know, Airbnb for three months or something like that. Um, but uh, I'm here in June to do a number of professional and personal things, and it's going to take me the whole month. So that's a, a longish answer, um, but I'm still, you know, very much hooked into LA and. Uh, God, you know, I, I was in L.A. from uh, 1983 till February of 2018. So this latest move is something fairly new. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So Awesome. But I wanted to do this podcast because you guys are good. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, the, as you know, the podcast is somewhat new. Uh, we started in August. Dan came on officially when? Uh, a couple of months later. I okay. Think. Yeah, maybe October. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, maybe in October. So, but yeah, we've been blessed to be able to speak to, as you know, uh, the people who have performed in the film, people mm -hmm. who performed around the film, helped make it. The sound guys, Lauren Pita, Thomas Le Marquis, or Thomas mm -hmm. Le Marquis, mm -hmm. just really, really, really great. Mm -hmm. We've had great doors open to us. So again, you've been a big door. So again, many thanks for coming on the show. I've been called many things in my life and that's the first time I've been called a big door. A big door. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and and so much of our work depends on all the legwork that you've done, you know, in the original film and, and your subsequent work and of course uh, your original edition of Future Noir and everything that you've written subsequently, which I, I, amongst others, are anxiously awaiting any more. You know, I know you've talked about your online chapter, so we're all excited for that. So thank you, not just for showing up today, but for all the work that you've done for over the years. This is truly, um, as I know it is for you, uh, this is really a passion project for us. There really is nothing that I'm more passionate about than these movies. Um, oh. And so it's exceptional to be able to be in your presence and, and, and discuss it. And Okay, well, don't don't flatter me too much. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll have to ask for an assistant, a makeup person, wardrobe, my retinue. What the hell's all that, huh? Come on, guys. <laughs> but no, seriously, thank you very much. That's Absolutely. very flattering. My pleasure. Our pleasure. So my first question for you would be, how are you feeling about the Blade Runner universe these days? Well, I think uh, <clears throat> that's a not so veiled reference to BR 2049, um, which I found to be an excellent motion picture. Uh, certainly not um, tonally the same as the original, but what could be? Um, everything is a product of its time. Context is everything to use an old trope. Uh, what I found fascinating about 2049 was how uh, Denis was able to combine basically Andrei Tarkovsky with Philip K. Dick. For those of you who are fam not familiar with Tarkovsky, he was the Soviet director who did, uh, he, he's considered one of the masters of cinema. Uh, the Western world mostly knows him for films like Solaris or Stalker or The Sacrifice, but he did other films like The Mirror, Andrei Rudloff. Uh, some really wonderful historical and experimental movies, but Tarkovsky was um, one of the proponents of a certain approach to cinema, which is now called slow cinema, uh, which is essentially movies that are immersive, and they aren't like you know a Marvel, you know Avengers Infinity movie, right. you know, um, they 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 
concentrate on mood, on space, on giving you know the action, so-called uh, space to breathe, character, deliberately paced. I would never say boring. There are boring films. I've seen films that are 80 minutes long that are boring. I've seen movies... When you've seen as many films as I have, and I've been going my entire life, and I still do, I just saw an excellent, excellent science fiction slash horror slash um, literary thing called They Remain, which is uh, now available for, I think it's on Amazon that you can buy it, but it's an indie production based on a horror writer named Laird Barron, B-A-R-R-O-N, who is one of the the luminaries of what they call the new weird. That's a new um, categorization for a hybrid between literary fiction and genre fiction. I mean, there are writers out there right now that are, uh, you know, you would be studying them in school 10 years from now, you know, and not just because they're Philip K. Dick, because they have a certain worldview and they have philosophy. I mean, these people are just incredible writers. And anyway, this one's called They Remain, which I think is a horrible title. But then again, Laird's original story was called uh, Dash 30 Dash, which is an old shorthand newspaper term for the end of an article. You would, like when you were typing things and you would hand in your copy, you would put 30, that meant the end. And so it's kind of a, anyway, anyway, so I, long story short, I I see everything. Um, Two films I would recommend that aren't in the genre are one is Tully, the one with Charlize Theron. It's probably the best uh, postpartum uh, pregnancy movie I've ever seen. And also a thing called Beast, which is a little um, indie film that was shot on the Isle of Jersey uh, off you know, uh, England and is a kind of a, a psycho thriller slash character study with a breakout performance by a young woman uh, who you will be seeing a lot more of. Mm. And so I, you know, I'm all over the place. I've always been very eclectic. But in terms of my obsession with Blade Runner, um, it's it's funny because to me it's all organic. Uh, I started reading Philip K. Dick in the 50s when I was a little boy. Um, we were, we, my family uh, were was in the military and the Navy for a long time. And then my father worked for them in naval intelligence. And so it was like 30, 40 years of this. And we grew up, my brother and I, uh, in Japan, in the Philippines. And both of them at the time, uh, Japan had a bit more in terms of media uh, access. But in the Philippines, you had one TV station that was coming over the mountains 100 miles away from Manila, and you couldn't get the signals. In fact, I was there when the Outer Limits first came on, and I remember trying to go to a guy's house where we just put tinfoil on the rabbit ears and literally pick up this like 150-pound TV and move it around the room, like sit like this close to it and go, (laughs) oh, mm, yeah, I think, you know, that kind of thing. So I missed a lot of what other people of my generation who they now call monster kids, which I find a pejorative term, by the way, but I understand why, because there was a uh, package of things called, um, there were a whole bunch of syndicated movies that went out on TV in the late 50s, and that were the horror hosts. It was like Zachary and, you know, uh, Vampira and all this. They were the very first, you know, horror host on TV, and they had these packages that were all old universal pictures and also science fiction films and horror films from the 50s. And this hit this generation, this post-war generation, the kids, baby boomers. And then before you knew it, there were horror comics, horror trading cards, monster this, monster that, monster kits, monster songs like the Monster Mash, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was just like this wave that just transformed a whole generation. And many of us 
who are in the industry now or moving out of the industry were heavily influenced by that as kids. And so we wound up in the industry loving those type of things and being proto-fans long before it was geek culture or anything like that. We were already there. We, were, we didn't realize we were the pioneers, but we were. And so our generation has just drifted with that, if you're still into it. And I'm very much still into it. So I see every horror film, I see every science fiction film, I ever see every crap slasher film that comes out. <laughs> I see them, you know? And I sit there and I go, huh, okay, most of the time. But there are some really excellent, uh, you know, excellent, excellent films. More than ever, actually. But most of them are indie films right now. Mm -hmm. So having said all that, um, I was trapped in an environment that mostly relied on literature and the pulp magazines were still around although they were dying there was like analog science fiction galaxy science fiction a couple of horror comics i <laughs> i was around when the ec comics you know and i was just a little kid but I, years later i found there's one called black cat it was just like i remember the first one i saw it had a severed head on a stick and it was in a fire and the flesh was all burning off but the head was still alive and it was screaming and I'm, and I'm like seven or eight you know I went oh wow you know what's this right. <laughs> you know so anyway that's I guess that's why I'm so twisted later on um, but I was also fortunate enough to have parents who were in two different media my father really loved literature and both of them grew up poor but they were autodidacts and they did the bootstrap thing and uh, I benefited from their largesse by being able to go to college and you know private schools and that kind of thing. Um, but my dad was like a hardcore literature person, and I mean serious literature like Emerson, Thoreau, the philosophers, um, all of the great novels like Moby Dick and The Confidence Man by Melville, who a lot of people don't even know wrote that other book, which is equally as good as Moby Dick. Right. Quite not the epic, but it's certainly it nails America you know 150 200 years ago it's that's american now mm -hmm. and it's called the confidence man you know donald trump's bible hey they are politicized it um <laughs> and uh it so i was exposed to that and my mom was also a reader but she was more into pop culture stuff she liked mysteries and thrillers and so i grew up around that but she was a hardcore movie buff before that was called that now the uh, naval stations and most of the military stations back at that time had five or six movie theaters and they would have in one week they would have a package of movies that would rotate through the different theaters and they were a really strange eclectic grab bag you had art films in the Philippines in the 50s or the 60s who would think right but you also had whatever was au courant and then you had th things from the vault i remember watching a 35 millimeter black and white print of war of the worlds in the philippines and it wasn't a 16 tv print it was a 35 millimeter god knows where that came from hmm. but i had seen that originally when it came out when i was four years old and that was one of the ones that really twisted my head because it, there was such an overriding sense of dread in that film so I got into the classic science fiction writers, and uh, Asimov, Bradbury, Clark, PKD. And the first story I read, as I've said many times, was The Father Thing, when I was about nine years old. And that is one of his stranger short stories. It's almost like an invasion of the body snatchers type of thing. Uh, and it all stars little kids uh, who one of them finds out his father isn't his father. And in fact, his real father is in a barrel in the garage who's been sucked dry and all that's left is his skin, which is like crinkly, just tinfoil. 
and there's a segmented metal bug about the size of a foot long that's in the backyard that they catch and is actually doing this and he it's a very strange story and yeah and that was my introduction to the world of philip k well, and, it's, and it's a strange philip dick story which yes it is already his books are quite oh, yeah. quirky and yeah I, I literally have read everything he's written and wow. uh, you know i've got back on my well since we moved it's in a box now but um i have everything uh, all the collected short stories all the novels i've got the exegesis i've got everything you know and um also I was fortunate enough to then meet him in 1973, and uh, we uh, were acquaintances, and by the time the whole Blade Runner thing came around, we kind of knew each other, and then it became a lot more, a lot more intimate. And uh, there's a whole story about Phil, too. It's uh, very strange to watch someone go from a flesh and blood human being into a deity, into a myth. The myth, you know, that old line from the uh, uh, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, when the legend becomes bigger than the truth, print the legend. That's the PKD story. Mm. Right. Wow. In terms of uh, the way you grew up and the, the films that you were seeing and a lot of old sci-fi and... Um, Let's, uh, let, let me amend that. Contemporary sci-fi. Contemporary sci-fi, okay. Because yeah, everything was new, you know? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Do you see, as an adult now, as a, you know, with your legacy, uh, do you see things that, like, hey, this... You know how you can see connected threads mm -hmm. to things that do you do you see that even in, in reference to the Blade Runner films or the Blade Runner twenty nineteen as we like to uh, we call them twenty nineteen and twenty forty nine right so we don't yeah, get of people confused yeah. Yeah. Um, there are there are, there are things are there things that jump out to you like oh wow this was interesting this was interesting to me when I was ten and I'm still gravitating to it now well I mentioned Invasion of the Body Snatchers which is you know the original from mm -hmm. the late 50s mm -hmm. which is all about the loss of identity and you know being replaced by an emotionless alien you know which has certainly got some you know echoes in 2019 and in 2049 mm -hmm. uh, nothing exists in a vacuum and everything well every now and then a true original will come down the pike like Blade Runner uh, but even Blade Runner the original um, was a composite of you know pre-existing influences, but then thrown out by a man who was a genius in onset improvisation. Uh, Ridley watching him work uh, was fascinating because he, all of that accretion of detail, much of it had been hashed out in the art department, but then he would change his mind on set, and he would do things by himself that were just fascinating. He really, I mean, the word genius is so overused, you know, especially if you have two hit movies. Oh, what a genius. Right. Um, but I'm uh, not only a film buff and a filmmaker, but also very critical person who really chooses his words carefully. And when I use the word genius at onset improvisation, I don't say that lightly. I have never seen anyone who's done that before or since. And I, I clearly remember when Sebastian's uh, workshop, when they were doing that on stage, and uh, Ridley came out and he looked at it and he goes, no, 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 and which he said a lot. And uh, <laughs> and they said, what? And he, he goes, well, that should be, and you know, all that stuff, all those automatons and the, and the live actors and you know, whatnot. And uh, he said, clear the set. And at that point, I had been around enough uh, and incidentally, Ridley met me long before production, and we hit it off immediately. It was not so much a personal 
bonding, but it certainly was a professional one. I got him right away. And a lot of people didn't get Ridley. I just got him. You know, I said, oh, geez, this is a major talent, you know, and he's got like this laser focus and, you know, he's going to do it his way and he knows exactly what he wants. And, you know, if you go along with that, it's fine. And that was his job, you know, let him do it. A lot of people pushed back against that who didn't understand him. And then he became frustrated and it became a very unpleasant set. But not only because of him, there, as, the, as the book says, Future Noir, there were a lot of negative elements going on. Anyway, so he said clear the set but he allowed me to kind of hang in the back and I was this sort of like a ghost on the set and a lot of people knew me but I look completely different now than I did then I used to have a stash of beard hair out to here you we've know. looked up some of your old guys. oh yeah yeah okay yeah I know I look like uh, someone who's an outlaw and uh, I was living an outlaw lifestyle um anyway that's a whole other book um but he uh, was very uh good about like if you don't get in the way, you know, that's fine. And uh, I used to hang with Jordan Cronenworth's camera crew a lot and just like met he and his son, Jordan. Jordan was the sweetest man. He was a really nice guy, he was very ill and getting sicker as the film went on. Misdiagnosed and then turned out he had a very serious disease, which put him in a wheelchair by the end of the show. Um, anyway, so even Jordan left and I'm sitting there and I'm watching him from kind of the back of the stage. And he literally got up and sat cross-legged in the middle of the Sebastian toy menagerie. And he just went like this with his, uh, he put his uh, chin, you know, on uh, his hand and just stared. And then he just started to arrange things. And he said, all right, now it's ready. And you looked at him, and went, oh, it's better. You know, so he has that hyper visual, you know, hyper visualization. And it just was fascinating to see that kind of stuff. And he would see things, you know, that nobody would see. He'd say, look, you know, that baby a baby is a small spotlight. He said, you know, that baby over there in the corner of the set, yeah, it shouldn't be there. It should be over there. And everyone, where's the baby? Oh, oh, you know, nobody even, he saw it, you know. Right. So it was fascinating to watch him work. And he had a lot to prove on that movie. This is his first Hollywood film, you know, in terms of working in, you know, in America within the studio system. Even though he worked for Fox on Alien, he shot that in England with a lot of his people that he knew, and it was a much more comfortable experience. Who Blade Runner wasn't comfortable. So that's a long story to show that by the time I got to Blade Runner, um, I had a lifetime of reading. Oh, and I met many of my heroes, like I met Theodore Sturgeon, Richard Matheson, Robert Block, uh, Harlan Ellison, uh, <laughs> Forrest Ackerman, if anyone knows he, who he is, Mr. Monster, Famous Monsters of Filmland, that was his magazine, look it up. Um, that, that was kind of like the, the proto-film journal for all the monster kids. Mm. I mean, he was the first one to put out like a popular kid-oriented monster magazine, but all about films. And then there was another one that called Castle of Frankenstein that came out in the mid-60s that was like the film comment of, uh, you know, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Cine Fantastique. And, yes. you know, so I, and I was involved in all of those. Right. So it's just been a lifelong immersion in many different things. But all of that came together in Blade Runner. I want to ask you about, and I'm going to pass it off to Dan. Um, when you were on set for Blade Runner, were you, of course, you're seeing these sets you know Ridley Scott, you know about Alien, maybe The Duelist. Oh, I'd seen The Duelist here in Santa Monica at the Royal Theater when it first came out, me and three other people. Yeah. There was no one in the theater. <laughs> and I remember I had heard about Ridley because um, I've always, uh, 
I'm, a, I'm an omnivorous reader, and I'd always uh, heard that he was doing these fa fabulous TV shows because he started in television, and also all of these commercials and RSA, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And so I knew this background. Mm -hmm. And then I saw The Duelist, and I said, they didn't have any money, and he made this look like a $100 million film. Yeah. And it's one of his most, it's his art film, his first art film. Yeah. He's actually done more than one, you know. But uh, that one, uh, you know, I was really impressed. Yeah. And uh, then, of course, Alien came along. And uh, Alien, I said, I thought, when initially I saw Alien, I said, oh, he's sold out. Which is kind of <laughs> funny, uh, because it being such a, you know, seminal uh, horror science fiction hybrid, uh, I was almost 30 years old, and I'd already seen everything. And so, although I truly was respectful and kind of awed by the design and the mood the gothic overtones and some of this some of the scenes like when you first see it when it's after you know the the xenomorph has actually gotten human size and you see how big the damn thing is you know i mean stuff like that you know and the cat of course you know jones like a, you know there's so many mm -hmm. one but i remember coming out of it thinking you know yeah that was a really good movie but and if i thought also i told my wife who i saw it with if i was 17 years old i'd be doing handstands but I wasn't. I was 30. And so, and I'd already been in the business a bit. So I had a kind of a slightly different take on it. And I kind of remained that. It's a wonderful film. I'm not trying to knock it. It's a fantastic accomplishment. But to my way of thinking, Blade Runner is a much better film. Hmm. Much better film. Did you expect during Blade Runner, while you're there on set and you're seeing this film be made, were you kind of, were you like, oh, I see what he's going for? Because there's a quote in your book where he didn't really know what he had done. Like, we didn't really know what kind of movie we had made. And I'm, I was curious, and I was talking to, about, to Dan with, about this earlier, like, I wonder if Paul had a sense of, wow, they're making something really amazing, or they're like, well, I don't really know what they're making. It seems kind of crazy. Hi, this is Philip Mitchell and I'm the producer of Trial by Stone, the Dark Crystal Podcast Network. If you're a fan of the 1982 classic Jim Henson film, we have a lot of shows on offer to listen to. With Trial by Stone, The Gathering Songs and The Dark Crystal Minute all part of the network. With the new series Age of Resistance coming soon to Netflix, it's a fantastic time to be a fan of The Dark Crystal and hope you can give our podcasts a listen. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean or on our Patreon for early access to our shows. Just search for Dark Crystal Podcast. I had before uh, even setting foot on any of the sets, um, I was already in the art department while they were designing it and redesigning it and redesigning it. I had already started interviewing numerous people. I had read three or four drafts, you know, uh, before they started shooting, and that changed while they were shooting. But that's kind of co fairly common. I mean, you always have these different color pages, you know, uh, as you change things. And although things have become so corporatized and compartmentalized lately that that's not quite as um, common as it once used to be. Um, but no, I, you know, I'd read it and I'd read uh, Hampton's original screenplays and just been knocked out by the oddness of it and also the heart. Uh, Hampton's a very interesting, sweet, emotional, smart, 
cultured guy who's had quite a life and um, and also has this uh, persona of being laid back and kind of self-effacing, which is a smart way to be in the in movie business because then you don't get as much shit, frankly. Um, you stick your head... It's like the, the Australians have a saying, if you stick your head up above the crowd, we're going to smash it down with a 10-pound hammer. You know, And that, that kind of attitude is many places in mm-hmm. many many mm-hmm. businesses you become a target essentially um, so I knew going in and also having read the source novel when it first came out and talked to Phil about it and heard you know his displeasure and knew about when the you know the mid 70s the attempts to try to get it you know optioned and shot and all this kind of stuff so I already had history going in but then I saw this and I thought oh wow Ridley Scott this screenplay these designers, Sid Mead, who I knew about already, and uh, you know, I mean, he had you know worked on V'ger, you know, uh, for uh, Star Trek the motion picture, you know, and, and many other things. And yeah, I was his aware. work is incredible. Well, yeah, and you know, Sid and I are good friends, and and he, when I was still living here in Los Angeles, he's literally three miles away from me, and we used to see each other all the time. I, he and uh, his manager Roger and I have uh, gone to lunch and you know, just uh, hang out, you know, and uh, he and he is. Uh, He's a living legend, but he's also uh, the same way. He's uh, you know got a certain humility about him, and uh, he's just you know he's 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 a, he's a unique talent, you know. And so is Ridley. So to answer your question, I knew going in it was going to be something special. Mm-hmm. Now Ridley might be a bit disingenuous when he says, "I don't know what we've got." He knew what he had, you know. But he was under such stress. And that was a thing, I, I don't know if I've, I probably have, but if I haven't said it enough, I should say it more often. One of the things I totally admired about Ridley was the fact that he was being beaten up by world-class thugs. And every morning he'd get up and do it better. And I just, you know, I was close to this process and I, I was, uh, the access I had, I had to be quiet about it, you know, during the, the time that was going on. But one of the things that I've learned is, again, we were talking about earlier about honesty and uh, talking to Harrison Ford and trust. And, you know, it's, it's like a cop. A cop has people lie to him all day long. There's no point in lying to an officer. He knows when you're lying. Good actors and most actors, they're constantly observing people. And even if they are within their own slightly neurotic universe, they're not all like that. But, but actors are, are like emotion antennas right and so they can spot you know phony they can spot someone who for the most part is like pretending to be something they're not and i've just that's just my personality i've just been like kind of laid back and hey i get really excited about this and it's genuine i have a, a certain childlike enthusiasm that i've kept and also i've been around so when I talk to someone like Harrison, I'm not going to just talk to him about Indiana Jones or Han Solo or Rick Deckard. I'm going to talk to him about that creepy assistant he played in the conversation or the fact that I saw him in Bonanza when he was, you know, in the mid-60s. He's the third cowboy from the left who always gets <laughs> shot and killed by the you know, second hour. <laughs> or Apocalypse Now. Or Apocalypse Now, yeah, yeah. which is an interesting. You know, he's a fine actor, right. and that's one of the reasons why he's persistent. Plus, he's certainly savvy about the games that the industry plays mm-hmm. so anyway um i was able to and and still you have to gain people's trust it's as essential as that and i i told people up front look i'm not here to you know write a tell all about who you're sleeping with or how many drugs you're taking or any of that shit you know i said i know i know pretty much everything that's going on but i'm not that's not what i'm about i'm about to 
objectively talk about what you guys are doing, which is a really hard job, mm -hmm. right? And so I think I got props for that to a certain extent. I'm not trying to pat, pat myself on my back, but you know, I was just in there to do you know what I was in there to do. So I had no problems with Ridley until he got he got crazy at one point. And uh, <laughs> well, and I understand why he was he was fighting for his life. And uh, he went from being focused, uh, charming, and uh, and the first oh, few days he was fine. Like, and then slowly you could see him turning into something that was completely stressed out, and it was coming out in sarcasm, and it was coming out in anger, and that type of thing. And I got it, you know. I I sat there and watched him every day and said, Jesus Christ, I'd have my I'd be on my nineteenth nervous breakdown to quote an old Stone song, you know. And uh, he he kept doing it. You know, and I thought, wow, this is a world-class talent. So I knew going in that there was a possibility of this thing really being something special. He did too. On set, there was a complete disconnect between 95% of the people working on it and the 5% who believed it and saw it. Mm. And most of the people who understood it were, interestingly enough, the British people. It was like Katie Haber, who is one of the one of the producers, marvelous woman. Have you talked to her yet? No. Oh, I'll set. You guys should really. No, Katie's wonderful. She's oh, Sam Peckinpah, assistant for ten years. In fact, uh, tomorrow she's at a reunion of all the Peckinpah people who are still alive. Oh, wow. But I'll hook you guys up. Oh, okay. Katie's cool. wonderful. Okay. Um, but uh, there was Eva Powell, who was the associate producer and had been one of Ridley's producers for many years. Um, there was, of course, um, Terry Rawlings, the editor. And uh, Michael Dealey, the producer, who was, oh, he was almost, he was kind of my gateway to begin with. We had a long conversation. I came in out of cold. I called him up and I said, look, I said, I've approached two different magazines. This is what I do. This is who I am. Can we meet? Cold. And he goes, all right. And so they were just starting prep, not even starting really. And uh, they just hired really. And I came in and I threw down a bunch of stuff I'd written. I said, that's me. You know, I said, this is what I want. You know, what do you think? And he we talked for a while, and he goes, fine by me, go talk to Ridley. And we ended up, Ridley and I, the very first time we talked, about two hours. And he was busy, and yet he put aside, and we, you know, I'm sure he doesn't remember now. Um, well, no, Ridley's life is probably one of the fullest, uh, you know, he's his life is like scheduled out like two, three, four, five years in advance. Um, and he's never stopped. He's 80 years old, and he's going like a 20-year-old, yeah. you know, it's yeah. amazing. Um, so by the time all that happened, I had a certain rapport with these people. But as the filming progressed, I noticed that the ones who seemed to be attuned to what was going on and being done were that same English group. And many of the crew uh, either didn't get it, didn't like Ridley's style, increasingly didn't like Ridley's style, but they weren't aware of the fact that there was this upper echelon of people like Bud Yorkin and uh, you know Jerry Parencio, who were like just coming down on Ridley every single moment and didn't didn't at all get what he was doing and then of course you had the famous feuds between you know Harrison and Sean Young and you know and then Harrison and Ridley who was so contentious and I'm in the middle of all of it just trying to you know be a ghost be a ghost but on the other hand be uh, you know like somebody you could always talk to and you know um, so it was really a fascinating experience and then when the fucking sets went up on the New York street there were, you know, I've been on already quite a few sets, and I remember just like my jaw dropping. And I was around when they were first putting them up and transforming this old, 
outdoor back lot that had been literally where Joan Crawford and Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis, you know, had all walked the streets, Jimmy Cagney. And suddenly it's like, you know, this retro, you know, alternate future. And uh, it was was just like 50 bits of neon everywhere at least. And um, just the rain that was going on with the rain bars all the time, the smoke pots, the newspapers, you know, and it just, after a while, it was just such an oppressive atmosphere. Right. But I remember thinking, oh, this is really cool. You know, I this guy, and then, oh, and he would play Pink Floyd a lot over oh, loudspeakers, you know, like Umma Gummer, you know, mm-hmm. you know, or some of the, you know, the more, not, not Dark Side of the Moon. He was playing, uh, you know, stuff that was more uh, early Floyd, you know, mm-hmm. and just kind of odd, eerie music to get everyone in the mood. And uh, so, you know, all that, you know, I would go back and I would tell a, f- a few key people because it very quickly became apparent to me who I could talk to and would understand where I was coming from and my enthusiasms and who I couldn't share those enthusiasms with it because they had their own personal grievances, which I understood. Everybody's got a different take on this. But to answer your question, I knew, and so did a handful of people, that what was coming was going to be really special. Mm-hmm. The crashing disappointment was to see the theatrical cut because I'd already seen the work print. I'd seen versions, you know, that other people, when they were putting it together. Um, And uh, when I saw that awful narration, which I still think just is terrible, but some people love it because it like situates them and they go, oh, it's like the old film noir. It's just badly written. And uh, and Harrison, everyone, there's an urban myth about he performed it badly. He did not. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, he read what was given to him and followed with the directions that they wanted. But right. you know, that's a whole other story. Right. So, once again, in my 15-minute answer, <laughs> I, uh, I, I kind of knew. And I, I just, but then I saw the film and I saw that tacked-on happy ending and went, oh my God, they ruined it. So I was very disappointed, but then I started to see it come back, and I started to track it on, you know, uh, VHS, and then it was on early cable TV, and you know, you could just see it building through the 80s, and then of course when they found the work print in 90, which led to the director's print in 92, director's cut, so-called director's cut, and then, you know, all those other things, you know, but mm-hmm. I've been there through the whole process. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, it's just fascinating to me to be able to take all the details of this mosaic and, and put them in this overarching roof that's Blade Runner. It's funny, uh, and this has happened to me before with very uh, articulate people who are used to giving interviews. You've anticipated like my first 10 questions and already answered all of them almost exactly in order. Um, but, uh, you know, it's funny. I never thought about it until you mentioned it. Uh, and I've read about the oppression on, on set and how, you know, and all those issues and the smoke and the wetness and how it started, you know, mold started to grow. And it's, oh, it's yeah. this really oppressive environment. And especially towards the end of shooting, they were running 24-hour schedules or at least when it was dark, you know. And I never thought about it until this moment. But isn't it funny that they were trying to portray this oppressive world where you had to be some kind of loser to still be on the planet, right? You had a medical <laughs> issue. You, everybody that was somebody or was poor. off world or poor. Mm-hmm. And so isn't it funny that really everybody that worked on it, including yourself, started to really feel that oppression? I mean, Oh, absolutely. And of course, the diurnal thing. Um, 
you know, we're creatures of the light and, you know, we scurry to our caves at night, but not on Blade Runner. There's 55 nights of shooting and it was like brutal. And no one uh, suffered more than Ridley. And Ridley was going on three, four hours of sleep a night. And it was unbelievable. He just kept, it was like the Energizer Bunny, you know, right. more than one person used that analogy. It just keeps on going. But it was, uh, it, was, it was a tough shoot. It's one of the toughest I've ever been involved with. Now, the interesting thing was I was able to, although I became quite close, and I still have friends. Uh, Joanna Cassidy is a great friend of mine. Sean and I, you know, although we've had our ups and downs, are, are still, I would say, good friends. Uh, Michael Dealey, the producer, and I are great friends. Ridley and I still see each other. Uh, when available, um, you know, <clears throat> and I'm just flattered that he even finds time for me. Last time I saw him, the last thing he did was he gave me a, you know, a shake. It's good to see you again, man. You know, and uh, so, you know, that type of thing just warms my heart. Uh, but um, the film itself, let, you know what? Let me correct a, a misimpression. There are a lot, and, and, it's, and, and I understand where people are coming from when they make this observation, but it's incorrect. I keep reading especially now, after 2049 came out, they, uh, the reviewers will go back and they'll talk about 2019 and they'll say, well, you know, it's just like a money grab. First we had the first one and then we had the director's cut and then we had this cut and that cut. And it's just like squeezing more money. That's not it at all. That's not what this was all about. What this was all about was Ridley Scott's schedule. Ridley Scott never had a moment until the final cut, which was, of course, supervised by... Charlie DeLazarica, big props, Charlie, uh, who did a fantastic job he did. In, in a very difficult uh, situation and uh, just threw himself into that project. And then, of course, did all of the supplements and that wonderful Dangerous Days documentary. Incredible work, yeah. Yeah. And, um, it's one of the best behind-the-scenes documentaries. I've oh, ever absolutely. Seen. I wish it had gone theatrical. I mean, three and a half hours, that's probably the problem. But it, but it's, you know, really. And and I never get tired of watching it. Nope. I know? just watched it yesterday. <laughs> I know. And it's got, you know, and he worked, he did a marvelous job on it. Um, but um, there seems to be this perception that these were all done for money, and it's not that at all. I mean, Ridley, when they first decided to do the so-called director's cut it was because all of a sudden they had this big buzz about finding the work print in 90 and then suddenly they were showing it at the new art theater and then the cast were up in san francisco and this whole new generation and the old the people that only seen it on vhs suddenly were just like oh, oh this is a whole different you know and so that was a capitalization by warner brothers but people went not ridley other people michael eric in fact the guy who found the 70 millimeter version of that was one of the people of the work print, uh, to be clear, for those of you who don't know this arcane and complicated Blade Runner history. Um, <laughs> there was a 70 millimeter print of the work print found in 1990 by a preservationist, which was then screened, but nobody knew it was the work print until it actually came on the screen. And it was totally different from the theatrical release. And that gathered a lot of attention. So Warner Brothers decided in 92, well, let's do it. And um, Ridley was so busy, he fell asleep during the screening <laughs> of his original cut. And he waked up and he said, oh, I'm glad you put the unicorn in. He walked out and there's no unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and people went, oh, okay. And uh, anyway, but he, and even that was not what he wanted, right? It was just that they took out the uh, faux happy ending, the ride into the sunset, <clears throat> which of course uh, is famously outtakes from The Shining. And incidentally, there's a whole book about the similarities between Stanley Kubrick, David Lean, and Ridley Scott. 
because David Lean and uh, Stanley Kubrick are Ridley's idols. And, uh, you know, Prometheus is Ridley's 2001 to a certain extent. Um, but anyway, um, so the phony ending is dropped. The uh, thing with the, uh, uh, what you call it, with piano, you know, being taken of the uh, bad, uh, you know, unicorn shot. Not the real one, but the bad unicorn right. shot is in. And so that kind of completely changes the dynamic of whether Deck is a rep. And Deckard is replicant. If you saw the theatrical cut, he's not. It's very ambiguous. It's mostly like, well, Gaff left this unicorn just to let him know that, you know, he was here and saved Rachel because you didn't see the unicorn dream. And then, you know, very slowly over the years, it came back to what it originally was. And that's what's so humorous to me. It's kind of amusing to think that there's this perception out there within certain circles that this was all done for filthy lucre. It's not. You know, this was like a long 25-year process to get it to where it really was. Back That's to Ridley's all. original exactly. vision, right? Yeah, or, or original cut, really. Right, right. You know, and uh, with bits and pieces thrown in. And so, um, you know, following all that was interesting. I, my one regret was that I, in 2000, Charlie DeLazarique and I were going to do a restoration. And it, it took another seven years for it to happen. Right. But by the time the restoration happened in 2007, I was on other things and I couldn't, I could have been more involved, I think. And uh, I, I, I sort of, in a way, I'm sorry that that didn't happen. But on the other hand, it couldn't have not been in better hands, you know? So, I mean, there's really no resentment or anything. It's just like, mm, darn, you know? Could have been more involved in that one. So but I don't want to make assumptions. So just to put it on the record, do you agree that the final cut is the definitive version? Yeah. Of the oh, printing? sure. Yeah. Uh, but for many years, I, I preferred the work print. Interesting. And, and that was my favorite uh, because it was uh, tonally and uh, also uh, just uh, technically, you know, it was it was rough. And it wasn't a, an answer print, so it wasn't smoothed out and had been color timed. And, you know, you could still see splice marks and things like that. It was kind of rough, yeah. It was very rough. But the interesting thing about that roughness was that it added to the grit and to the darkness of the, of the, uh, that's my stomach making dog barking noises. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. Uh, uh, and it, it was even more oppressive and it was more atmospheric and it had different things that have not even shown up, you know, in the subsequent final cut and stuff like that. And also the ending, you know, there's only one tiny little bit of narration in the work print and that's at the very end when, you know, after Roy or Rooker Howard gives his, you know, tears and rain speech, um, where, uh, Harrison says, you know, I watched him die all night. It was a long, slow process. He took it everywhere, you know, blah, 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 blah. And that's the only time you hear any narration. And it's kind of like, ooh, you know, and it made it more poignant. Uh, so for many years, that was my favorite. But then when the final cut came out, I went, finally. Well, yeah. and, and, and I think that had the narration, you know, obviously we understand that narr the point originally of the narration was to go for that old film noir yeah, style. Exactly. So, you know, Which was, by the way, from the intent from the very beginning. Right. It was in all of the scripts. Right. Harrison didn't like it. That's why it got dropped. Right. And then... And then reinstated. <laughs> Which is right. another reason why Harrison wasn't thrilled with Blade Runner. Right. And most of us agree with him that it just wasn't written that well, you know, and it, and it didn't match the quality of the rest of the work. But we can kind of understand the logic behind it. And I, I my think... My coffee cups. He keeps hitting my <laughs> microphone. Sorry, people. But in terms of kind of uh, going back to um, the... Uh, 
man, the Russian filmmaker's name is escaping me. Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky. Thank you. Andre Tarkovsky. Yes, we just recently uh, watched Stalker together, actually, and, uh, and so I'm I'm very aware of what you're talking about with that lengthy shots and sort of that atmospheric feel. Mm-hmm. And of course, I think the main thing, aside from whether the the narration was poorly written or not, it just it pulls you out of allowing you to really sink yes. into the scene and absorb that well atmosphere. Put. Right? Well put. Yes, I found it. Uh, it was. It was like a layer of distraction. It was like something shellacked on top of it that wouldn't allow you just to just get immersed into that. Because that people who weren't there in 82 when it came out have no idea how transformative that motion picture was and I think part of the and I've written about this extensively but I I, I, I don't think I know that part of the reason it was not a success at first was that it was so radically visual there was like this avalanche of detail coming at mm-hmm. you and everywhere you looked and, and you'd kind of get distracted you it's know? too much to even like, process yeah, yeah and but that's what's so wonderful about it because you can keep going back and back and right back. and even i when the final cut when the first time we uh i saw it um at a special screening and uh, uh that charlie put together and i i saw like in in deckard's apartment there were like watered up pieces of paper that had missed a trash can and i thought jesus i never saw that one before <laughs> so i still you know that kind of obsessive attention to detail but again that's ridley's genius at onset visual improvisation you know and he would just the stuff just came up and what was fascinating too and i've said this before is how blade runner on a certain level is an act of therapy for ridley um you know his brother frank had died i've talked about this story before uh ridley was shattered by that and had been working not too successfully with Dino De Laurentiis on doing Dune uh, the adaptation that uh, David Lynch actually did which by the way I worked on for two years right and uh, that was my Waterloo that was the film that was the most difficult film personally and professionally I've ever worked on and not only myself that was a that was a rough slog for a lot of people Um, but what was your official position when you were working on Dune? Well, at that point in my career, I had become, <laughs> this is going to sound far more elevated than it really was, but I was a junior vice president of domestic publicity, theatrical special projects, which meant nothing. <laughs> Quite the title. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, and all, I, 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 literally, I literally had like a Sharpie and a little piece of like athletic tape with just Paul Salmon out my office door. You know, <laughs> they put me in a closet off in a corner. But hey, you know, I was working in the Black Tower for a while in Universal, which is, of course, you know, the main uh, administrative offices were. And, you know, Ray Stark's office was above me. And he's a famous producer. And the Mirish Brothers were around the corner. And, you know, um, it was, uh, uh, anyway, uh, for Dune, I was uh, essentially a studio suit uh, who, and I, I spent 15 years within the studios working in, you know, varying capacities, uh, right in the middle of the, the maelstrom, you know, the cancerous heart of Hollywood, hmm. you know. Nothing will make a film buff lose their love and passion for films faster than working in a studio. Um, but I managed to survive. And uh, on Dune, I was in charge of a number of things. And one of them was, uh, I was kind of a proto, um, what they now call genre marketers. And, you know, they're, they're, not as, they're not as prevalent as they used to be. But, you know, like Comic-Con when they have the big panels and stuff like that. Well, I used to be, uh, for I, I, I have a reputation for over a decade, I was one of the very first people, along with uh, Charlie Lippincott, a guy named Craig Miller, Jeff Walker, 
uh, Mick Garris at one point, who of course became the producer director of a lot of Stephen King adaptations. Mm. Um, we were all working for the studios uh, to bring genre pictures to varying conventions around the country and the world. And so I, through the 80s almost, I was like in a different city every weekend. It was nuts. One year I had over 300,000 frequent flyer miles. One year. Whoa. You know, and I gave them all away. And I started to just go crazy after a while. But um, I was uh, in that whole culture, so I was able to get all this feedback from you know what was going on, and I also you know being part of that uh, first wave, uh, know very well how to pitch things you know to certain market sectors. Um, incidentally, and this is a diversion, but I, I, there's a difference between publicity and marketing, and people don't know the difference. Publicity is the selling of a pre-existing product. Marketing is the selling of a product that doesn't exist yet. Oh. So all the stuff that you see, like, you know, when in 2049, when they did the little short films that Jake Scott and, uh, you know, um, I think I can never remember his name, but the guy who did uh, Cowboy Bebop, right, animated film, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's all. Oh, that's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's, you know, that's marketing because the film's not ready yet. Right. And so they're like trying to get it out there and get some you know stuff ahead of time. But the stuff will go out like two, three years ahead. Right. You'll hear buzz. Um, so I know all that. And so on Dune, I was uh, hired partially because I had already done that for Universal Pictures. I mean, excuse me, for Disney uh, on the Black Hole. And uh, yeah, I I was so lucky to see that. I am not a big fan of the film overall, but the design and you know, like some of the stuff in it. Scary Disney movie. Yeah, it is. Well, it was the first PG, first PG, first PG movie. You know, from you know, and and you know, like when uh, what's his name, the uh, red robot. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, 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 Mar- uh, Mar- uh, no. Yeah. Uh, Maximilian Charles Alter. Yeah, Maximilian. Right yeah. when he buzz saws Anthony Perkins, oh. you know, through the gut. That's kind of whoa. Wait a minute, Pinocchio to this. <laughs> and then at <laughs> to the this? end, where the, the the guy is inside Maximilian, it's like uh, they're in hell. Oh yeah. I, oh boy, did I that. I remember being terrified. That ending kid. changed so often; it was crazy. Yeah. They didn't, yeah, and then they went for what, to my way of thinking, was the most simplistic one. But that's just me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, on Dune, uh, I was not only uh, responsible for getting the word out and you know doing dog and pony shows with like you know bringing in talent and like showing sl- slides and clips, um, and I ran the thing. I'd be up there. It was me, you know, and. Uh, but I also was in Mexico City, staying with them for well over a year and watching it being shot and helping to, and this was a part of the nightmare of doom for me, um, there was an on-set video crew who was supposed to document the entire thing. And that came out of a suggestion that I made and that David Lynch, I found out, later had made, and we didn't know that we had both made it. And I had already worked on uh, doing EPKs and stuff like that, uh, electronic press kits, before Dune. And uh, this crew, for whatever reason, did not completely work out. They had a lot of problems of their own, technical problems and whatnot, but then it became this like big battle. I mean, guys, you've got to, you know, you're down here to do something, you know, and I'm not the enemy, and you know, and, and some people thought I was a studio spy, and then there was a lot of really contentious politics on that one. And uh, it was also a very, very difficult shoot because David had given up the right of final cut and he thought he was going to be able to work his way around that. And uh, he was on this like ladder to like the big time. And that was his biggest picture, right? And he never made another one after that wisely. 
you know, because uh, it almost destroyed him psychologically. He uh, that was a horrible experience for him, which is why he never talks about it. Uh, but anyway, I was in the middle of all that, and so uh, I was working essentially for the studio in about five or six different positions. And then I would bring down journalists from all around the world, you know, to the set and do like you know junkets and you know, and but also I'd hang out and I did the same thing. I wrote a double issue in Cinefantastique, which was the end of my association with them because under the table they were supposed to be visuals that were not supposed to be released, and I'm part of the publicity machine to make sure that doesn't happen. And the editor of Cinefantastique, uh, Frederick S. Clark, who was a bit of a loose cannon, went behind my back and paid somebody 50 bucks to f forward him all these photos. And then they put it in my article. Oh, no. And I did not know until I opened it oh, on wow. set. And that was, you know, you get betrayed a lot in the business. Um, but that was a particularly hurtful one. And I just yeah. washed my hands of that magazine after Whoa. that. And... Uh, you know, so it was, <laughs> you know, but here I am, you know, a lot of people come out of this business bitter, uh, you know, ridden with cancer and, you know, addictions and, you know, broken marriages and stuff. And I just find myself incredibly fortunate not to have done that. And partially it's because of the people that I became friendly with. And so there are some wonderful, real people in the movie business who are important people. It's not all a bunch of sycophants and neurotic assholes and sociopaths and, you know, as it's often portrayed by the people who really know the business. Right. Um, there are some wonderful, wonderful people, both in front and behind the camera. And I was just fortunate enough to hook up with someone. Awesome. Stay tuned for part two of our exclusive interview with film historian Paul Salmon, releasing in two weeks' time. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.